Thank you, uh, worship team, for leading us in song this morning as we gather together to praise and worship our awesome God. Uh, what a joy it is, once again, to gather together with God's people, praising his name together. Uh, I can't imagine not having that on a Sunday morning, uh, not seeing uh, just God's people being together and singing these praises to him, uh, the reading from his word and prayer together. And I pray that it is a, a joy and brings peace to you as well. Uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing in John. Uh, we'll be in John chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. Um, it's close to Christmas. Christmas is coming. Uh, I know people have probably been counting down since like November, October even. I've seen Christmas stuff out in the stores for quite a few months already. Uh, but the one big thing about Christmas, right, of course, as a church, we're focusing on, on Christ and his birth and that great gift. Um, but in our humanity, I'm sure we can acknowledge that we enjoy getting presents. Yes? If we're honest, if I'm honest, I love getting presents, right? Um, and there, when it comes to presents, there's good presents and there's, if we're honest, not so good presents, right? Uh, and we compare the gifts that we get, right? There's uh, those gifts, like the shampoo bottle that you open up, that must have come with a coupon, two for one, because your sibling got the other shampoo bottle as well. Um, there's those gifts, which, I mean, they do come in handy, but you're probably not super excited about that gift afterwards, right? Uh, but then there's those gifts that uh, you get that you've, you know, you've been thinking about the whole year, you've really wanted, um, whether it be a new video game system, uh, you know, something, something big, usually it's expensive, right? Parents, yes, usually it's expensive. Um, and after you've opened all your gifts, that's that gift that you go back to. That's a gift that you keep thinking about. You don't want to eat dinner because you want to go and play with that gift or use that gift, right? Um, fathers, when you get, you know, that new tool, you just want to tinker with it or, you know, your new laptop, computer, whatever it may be, right? But we compare the gifts that we have uh, to these other gifts. And although maybe... Uh, you know, some bring joy. They just don't compare with others, right? Uh, I can recall both these gifts. You know, the useless gift that I got once was a light-up dog frisbee. I don't know why someone thought that was going to be a great gift, but it was a gift exchange with our family, and my family has weird humor, so maybe that's why. Um, I'll be honest, I didn't. I don't think I opened it, <laughs> so. But there is that, there's another gift that I remember getting. My dad worked really hard to get it. It was a new Nintendo Wii video game system. He waited in line for hours, and then he just got a ticket to, like, get that video game system. Then he had to go back another day, like, really early in the morning to wait to get the actual system. It took forever. I had no idea until later that that happened. Um, I just opened the gift and was super excited. Uh, we all were, me and my siblings, were so excited. The reality is, is that even... These big gifts, though, if I think about it, that Nintendo Wii, like, we haven't used it for a couple years now, right? Even, even those great gifts that we have fade away in the past as well. And don't we sometimes do that when it even comes to Christ sometimes, right? We've, we've heard the story of Christ being born. We've heard uh, of him living his life perfectly, dying on the cross, being that sacrifice. You know, we've heard it a thousand times. And Sometimes it really does just fade in the past, and it's just another one of those great gifts that we got, and we leave it at that. 
But I pray that as we look at this passage, it will feel like opening the greatest gift for the first time again. Ripping off that wrapping paper, opening that box, and seeing the amazing gift of Christ as the Lamb of God. As we reflect on John's witness of Jesus, of who he is and what he came to do, as he points not to himself and his own baptism, but the baptism of one greater, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world and gives new life by baptizing us in the Holy Spirit. So let me pray as we begin reading in God's Word. Heavenly Father, God, may we stand in awe of you this morning. God, of your holiness, your majesty, and your power as we read from your Word. God, your Word is truth, and may we see it rightly as such. Lord, grant us a hunger for your truth, to submit to your truth. Guide us in wisdom and understanding that we would know the meaning of this text and how it points us to you and who you are and how it points us to Christ. Lord, increase our love for you, and in that, God, may it increase our love for one another. Lord, help us to apply this passage to our lives today, that we would be challenged and changed by your word, the working of your spirit, that we'd be obedient followers of Christ. And Lord, help me to preach your word with boldness and gentleness, that you will be center, that you will be glorified as you continue to save and sanctify your people. And I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. So once you turn again to John 1, and we're starting in verse 29. It reads, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. It's the word of the Lord. So this section really is a part two of what we heard last week from Pastor Nate, uh, that John gave his witness about Jesus as he said that there is one who is more worthy than I one that I'm not even worthy enough to untie his sandal. Imagine saying that about someone. You can't even untie their shoe, right? It shows the complete contrast between Jesus and John. John was showing his humility of the witness and of his unworthiness as he uh, reflected on who Jesus was and his coming. We've reached the center of what John has been saying about who Jesus is and why he has come. Many themes that we're going to see, uh, that we have seen even in the prologue of this gospel, will come out very clearly here, all pointing to the fact that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. And so as we start in this, uh, the very first verse on 29, it says, The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This really is the center of John's witness. This is the climax of John's witness about Jesus. Everything about Jesus, of who he is, his worth, his rank, Jesus being before all things, all that was read and explained in the prologue of John 1, 
all come together and points to the fact that Jesus is the chosen Lamb of God, and he's the only one who takes away the sins of the world. This is what John is trying to get people to understand. <clears throat> all of this was to show the Godhood of Jesus. Right? We talked about that before when we were looking just in verse 1. John wanted to make very clear that Jesus was not just a man. He was, in fact, God himself in the flesh. In the gospel, people are wrestling not with Jesus' humanity, right? They can see that he's a man, right? But they're wrestling with his divinity. And so John the Baptist is making very clear and witnessing to the fact that Jesus is more than just a man, but being God, the incarnation, fully man and fully God. Uh, what we call in theological terms as the hypostatic union. That's a big word. Essentially, it means the union of Christ's humanity and his divinity in one individual existence. Jesus, the God-man, one person, fully God, fully human. As we read in Colossians 2.9, it says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And in Philippians 2.5-8, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, in order to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus needed to be God. For who was without sin but God himself? Only Jesus could live a perfect, sinless life, who could pay the infinite price of our sins towards a holy, eternal God through his sacrificial death. We can see clearly if we look in the Bible that we are not perfect. We are sinful. In Romans 5.12 it says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. We have all sinned. We're all guilty towards a holy God. And our punishment is eternal death. But Jesus also needed to be man. Right? To die on behalf of man as the second Adam. Not being born of man, but of the Spirit in the miraculous virgin birth of Mary, coming in the flesh as a babe, which we celebrate. That is so important that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary through the Spirit. Because in Romans 5 it continues, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And so this phrase, the Lamb of God, might be kind of a, a weird way to express towards God himself. Right? Why is he calling himself the Lamb? It's kind of weird maybe for us to, to understand. It may seem strange, a strange description, but it would have had an intense impact on the Jewish ears. It points them back to the Old Testament of the animal sacrifices that they had to continue to perform. The Lamb was a sacrifice that was slaughtered to take place for the people's sin. It had to be spotless, and without blemish, that'd be perfect. But the lamb would only cover sins until they sinned again. Then they have to sacrifice another lamb, and then they sin again. They have to sacrifice another lamb. 
It was just an ongoing cycle. It was a temporary fix. It was a, a band-aid on a gunshot wound. Didn't do much. This is all pointing towards the Lamb of God that was to come. The Lamb of God that is now here. This is why John is witnessing about him. The Lamb of God that was provided and given as a gift who would take away the sin of the world through his death, through his sacrifice, his blood, and his body. I'm sure they would recall the words from Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 7. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The lamb was for sacrifice. The lamb was to die. And through his spilled blood, sins were atoned for. Jesus, the Son of God, became flesh and blood that he would die. Die like a lamb, slaughtered. It's not a pretty picture. It's not something we really want to think about. And yet Jesus still went and he still did it. He was killed for the sins of the world. Of the world not meaning that no one is excluded, not everyone will be saved. But that gift is accessible to anyone who receives it, regardless of who you are, right? For the Jewish people, they originally thought the Messiah was to come for them, to save them, destroy their enemies, right? But Jesus came for something greater. God had an even bigger plan than that. Jew, Gentile, man, woman, adult, child, every race and status level, if they but believe in Christ as their Savior, the perfect lamb slaughtered, they would be saved and their sins paid for. This is the gift of God. This is that great gift that you open up on Christmas Day and see. You're filled with joy. Joyous tears even. As you rest upon this amazing fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Another big word. You guys are going to learn a lot of big words this morning. But this is the reality that fuels our witness. The substitutionary atonement. This is what fuels our witness of the gospel to others. As Romans 3, 9-12 points out, we have all sinned and turned away from God. What, what then? Are we, are we Jews any better off? Paul says, no, not at all. If we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are dead in our sins. We do not seek after God. We seek after ourselves, our own selfishness, our own pride. We are lost in our sins. We're deserving of the punishment of death, of God's wrath, rightfully poured out on us. We deserve that. Right? God is just in that. However, there is a but. 
but the gift of God. And that gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, in that Lamb of God. Amen. Jesus Christ died in our place when he was crucified on the cross. We deserve to be the ones placed on that cross to die because we are the ones who lived sinful lives. Jesus didn't live a sinful life. He lived a perfect life. He was that perfect sacrifice. But Christ took the punishment on himself in our place. He substituted himself for us and took what we rightfully deserved. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Are you not just in awe of God and what he has done for us this morning? He was the substitute, and he atoned for our sins. That's what substitutionary atonement is. He satisfied that payment due for the sinfulness of man. But he also rose from the dead and is now glorified at the right hand of the Father, having accomplished and finished the work he set out to do, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so John 3, 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So I ask that question, is the wrath of God still remaining on you? Or do you believe in the Son that gives eternal life? Do you believe in this Lamb of God that John is pointing uh, the Jewish people to, that he is also pointing us to? The one who takes away the sins of the world, because there is no other way. There is no other substitute that will satisfy except Jesus Christ. Because if you believe, you will not perish but inherit eternal life as adopted sons and daughters, sharing in that sonship of Christ, gifted with the Holy Spirit, that we would die to sins and be reborn to live again, now justified, no longer bearing that wrath of God for our sins, but being sanctified in righteousness and obedience to the God who poured out love and grace upon grace. Jesus came in full knowing that he was to be the lamb, to be the sacrifice, and now he calls us to put our faith and trust in him. This gift isn't some gold or silver. It's not some new video game system. It is the immeasurable, abounding, overflowing gift of Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who died. I pray that each and every day we're just filled with that same joy that you would feel if you opened one of the greatest gifts on that Christmas morning. Every day that you wake up to just be reminded of the Lamb of God who sacrificed his life for us. So that's what we get from those first two verses. There's a lot in that, in that phrase. But as we continue on, uh, we see more of John's witness about who Jesus is. In verse 30, we read, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me. You see, John knew of his worth and he knew of Jesus' worth. And he's continuing to point to the fact that Jesus is worth so much more. <clears throat> After this grand declaration of John the Baptist uh, of Jesus, he quickly reminds us once again that Jesus' rank in comparison to himself is just astronomical. It's far above anything we can comprehend. Although Jesus came after John in both birth and ministry, right? John was born first. John also started his ministry first. 
But Jesus outranks him because he was there before the beginning of time itself, which we read in John 1.1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is a repeat as well of, of verse 15, tying this to, to that prologue of the gospel, that this is the same Word who was in the beginning. He is, he is the one who came in the flesh, who dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, who was glorified as the Son, who gives grace upon grace, this was indeed the one whom John was talking about before, pointing to the worth of Jesus and the unworthiness of himself. And so we'll see very quickly that John the Baptist actually kind of just fades into the background, right? He is that gift that should fade into the background, right? To make much of Jesus, to point to Jesus, to point to the amazing gift of who Jesus is. He's the signpost. He's not the destination that we're trying to find. He's saying, go this way. This is whom who I've been telling you about. He is the one you've been waiting for. He is the one who is worthy. He's the one who I'm unworthy to even be his servant. Don't follow me. Go and follow him. And so John's revealed that great, vast contrast between him and Jesus. The superiority of Jesus compared to John was like a spark to a raging fire. It was like comparing a sprout to a full-grown tree or a teddy bear compared to a grizzly bear. A significant difference. The big contrast that John makes very clear in this passage is the difference in their baptism, both in method and purpose. So you can see that John was actually baptizing to reveal Jesus to Israel through his witness and baptism, right, to prepare them for the way of Jesus. It wasn't to save them, it wasn't to save them from their sins, but it was to prepare their way to receive Jesus, the one who was to come, who can forgive their sins, who can save their sins. And we see just a couple of verses after in verse 33 that God the Father had ordained and called John to preach of the coming Messiah and baptize so that the Messiah would be revealed to Israel and even to John himself. So John was preaching and baptizing, preparing the way for the repentance of sins, to prepare their hearts to believe and rest in the Messiah who was to be revealed. John was given a way to identify the one who was to come. And so continue to be faithful to God's call, not pointing to himself, but pointing to the one who was to come, that Jesus would be revealed to Israel. I don't know if you've ever had to describe people before. Um, whenever, like, there was always a lot of people named Matt. It's kind of, it's a classic Bible name, and so lots of parents use it, especially, like, my age. And when I went to Bible college, there was probably like 25 of us. It was insane. Um, and so when people were trying to talk about whichever math they're talking about, they had to describe them in some way. They often said, oh, you know, if they're talking about me, the Matt with red hair, because I think I was the only one. Um, but sometimes I have a really hard time describing people, right? Like, it's hard to get that right identification of like, oh, you know, they kind of have curly hair and, you know, Especially, like, if they have a generic body shape, you're like, I don't know how to describe them, right? John didn't have that issue when he was trying to identify Jesus. To identify Jesus, 
it was going to be really hard to miss who he was. Because what does John say was the identifying circumstance of the one who was greater and were baptized not with water but the Holy Spirit? In verse 33 it says, On whom the Spirit would descend and remain. He is the one. You're not going to miss it. John's not going to miss it. He's going to see very clearly who is the one to come, the Lamb of God, the promised Messiah. And this was foretold even before this time. In Isaiah 11, 1-2, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And again in Isaiah 42, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And so John, we read in verse 32, recounts seeing the spirit descend on Jesus like a dove. The symbol of the dove stood for purity and lowliness or humility, which is a great description of the spirit of God. We can read of this baptism uh, in the other Gospels in Mark 1, 9-11, or Luke 3, 21-22, Matthew 3, 13-17. They all recount this baptism. Jesus is baptized, and the Spirit descends and remains, and the Father says, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. The identification of the chosen Messiah is the Spirit descending on him. And not just descending, but remaining on him. We see the amazing workings of the Trinity within this situation. As God the Father sends John to baptize that the Son may be revealed, he sends Jesus and is pleased with him as he marks him with the identification of the Holy Spirit coming and descending upon him and remaining upon him. That the Son would be known as the Messiah. It's the work of the Godhead, the Trinity, all one God, yet working in their persons in both submission and self-effacing roles, especially the Spirit who submits to the Father and the Son, and then in the Son who submits to the Father, and the Father who loves the Son and is well pleased with Him. The resting upon the Spirit identifies that the days of the Messiah is at hand. There is no more waiting. The Jewish people have been waiting for so many years. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's about a 400-year span of time as they awaited the coming Messiah. I have a hard time waiting for about 10 minutes. Right? We're impatient. I can't imagine waiting 400 years. Some of them wouldn't have even seen Jesus. But God was faithful and he kept his promise. And John is trying to awaken the people's eyes to see that this is the one who is to come. See, it's unlike those who had previously experienced the power of the Spirit. Uh, as we, we read back in, in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha, Elisha, Elisha asked for a double portion of Elijah's Spirit. Right? Or there's the judges, or David, or Ezekiel, when the Spirit stayed for this periodic empowerment. But with Jesus, the Spirit remained. And we're told later in John 3, 4, that it's given by God to Jesus without measure. Not just a double portion, but an infinite portion of the Spirit being poured out. How can anyone pour out the Spirit except the one whom the Spirit remains on and given without measure? 
This is the marking of the true Messiah, not one who simply baptizes with water, but immerses you with the Holy Spirit. John is not the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. This baptism John did is different even from the one that we do now. In fact, now that we have the promised Lamb of God revealed, who already died and rose again. The baptism we do is an outward act of an inward change that that God has made on our hearts and our lives. John's baptism was a preparation and repentance of sins, and the one to come for that inward change that came through the faith of Jesus Christ. But in both regards, these baptisms don't save you. Jesus saves you. See, John's baptism is a a purification rite for those who agreed with his call to repent for the forgiveness of their sins. Right? Rather than asking people to offer a sacrifice in the temple as they were used to, John offers this radical alternative for this era. Simply repenting and being baptized as they put their trust in Jesus Christ. This message of repentance would be continued and further and fully realized by Jesus in his ministry. It's an outward action pointing to an inward change, but that change actually only comes through the one who is immersed in the Holy Spirit. So how do you, how do you get that? How are you immersed in the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> it's through Jesus, the one whom the Spirit descends and has remained on. I pray that if you have put your faith in Christ, but you have not been baptized, that you would take that step of baptism to take that step of faith in proclaiming the change that God made in you to your local church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, by calling you to himself in faith through the immersion of you in the Spirit, by the life-giving sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So we have a, we have a baptism class. If you want to learn more about baptism, you can come talk to me or Pastor Nate uh, as you continue to grow in that maturity understanding of, of what Christ calls you to. But first, we have to be sure that we have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. See, the Spirit comes through Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are gifted with the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives you the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the means by which people receive the Spirit. There is no other way to receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will not do His redemptive work apart from Jesus. That's what it means that the Spirit now remains on Jesus. They work hand in hand. See, the Spirit brings life to us. In John 6, 63, it says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you, this is Jesus speaking, says, The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and life. See, life comes through faith in Christ, although we try to get life from many other places, as uh, my brother was talking about here for family worship, right? Idolatry. We seek to gain life. We seek to worship things outside of Christ, thinking that they will give us what we need, but they don't. Life comes through faith in Christ, through the Spirit just immersing immersing you because of his sacrifice. It's that dying to self and giving new life through Christ, reflecting the death and resurrection of Christ which is also imaged in the ordinance of baptism, that dying, going into the water, that coming out, that new life that we now have in the Holy Spirit, in Jesus Christ who died for us. 
The Spirit will also cause you to give life. John 7, 38-39 talks of the Spirit flowing out of the hearts of believers like a river of living water. As the Spirit works in you and through you because of your faith in Christ, you will be life-giving to others as you share the hope that you have in Jesus Christ with other people. It's an amazing thought to think that God can use us to even give life to other people. And so the question we have to ask is, are we actually doing that? Are we actually giving life to other people, or are we not being a great encouragement to them? Are we not even sharing with them the hope that we have, the peace that we have, the love that we enjoy, the presence of God that we have together? Do we reflect that? Do we show that? Do we share that? As you rest in Christ, you will be immersed in the Spirit, a full plunge. The Spirit touches everything in your life. Like baptism shows, as the water covers your entire body, so does the Spirit of God. It's not a singular aspect of the Christian life, but but your whole life is being affected. John Piper puts it well when he says that the baptism with the Spirit seems to be that that term is more broad. It's overarching one that includes the whole great saving, sanctifying, and empowering work of the Spirit in this age. I don't think it's a technical term that refers to one part of the Christian life, say conversion or speaking in tongues or a bold act of witness. It is a continual and sometimes extraordinary outpouring of the Holy Spirit on God's people. It immerses them not just in one or two, but in hundreds of His powerful influences. See, God wants to immerse you in his spirit, to fill you up with true life, that we would glorify him. The Holy Spirit's purpose that God the Father shows is that he is glorified as creator and holy God, who deserves our worship, whose will shall be done, and that Jesus is glorified as the perfect lamb, who died for our sins and rose again to give us new life in the Spirit. We can't do that apart from God. Just as John the Baptist says, he did not know Jesus. He needed God's help. He needed God to point him in that direction. He needed the Spirit to show him who Jesus was. We too need God's work in our life to come to him, to know him. And so as we are sanctified in the Spirit, we are called to walk in that, to walk in the obedience and to bring glory to Christ. That is what John is calling us to. As we rest in the Lamb of God, as we're filled with the Spirit, our purpose is to bring glory to God. The Christian life is one of growth, of looking more and more like our Savior, and this is done through the sanctification of the Spirit, that you'll be more in love and in awe of God, amazed by His great love, and gift of his son who died in our place. And will out of love walk in obedience by the work of the Spirit to show the fruits of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that you would bring glory to God. So what do we, we take away from this passage It's that Jesus is the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And He's the only one who can take away the sins of the world and fill us with His Holy Spirit. 
Jesus is the promised Messiah, the perfect spotless lamb, slaughtered for our sins, who rose again and immerses us in the Holy Spirit. Don't let this gift fade in the past. Love it. Cherish it. Repent by it. Live by it. Rejoice in it. Believe in it. Along with John, may we say and believe with full faith that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. John says that in verse 34. I have seen and I have borne witness. If you have seen and borne witness of who Jesus is, that you believe, believe that he is the Son of God. Don't just wait for the next new great gift to come to save you from your troubles, your sorrows, your fears, your sins. Don't wait for another gift because it's already arrived and you just need to receive it. There's no greater gift than Christ. So I pray that Christ's gift has not faded in the background, that his sacrifice has not faded in the background. Because when you see this account, you see the purpose behind Jesus' ministry. This is a purpose as he goes on from here in the rest of the gospel. As it points to the cross and the perfect lamb as sacrifice for your sins. Are you not still in awe of that? When troubles come, is that what you go to to remind yourself of God's faithfulness, of his goodness, of his promises to us? Or do you turn to other things? Other things to give you life. Other things to give you purpose. Does your heart and life reflect that awe and wonder of how the Son of God would even come down to earth? Would come down as a lowly babe, no less? To live among us? Do you still see the Lamb of God as the only way to true life? The one on whom the Spirit descends and remains on? If you aren't resting in Christ, then what are you resting in? I pray that you would find faith in Jesus, that you would believe this witness of John. Moreover, this witness of God, of who Jesus is. For he was the one who told John about how he would know the Son of God. God had this plan out from the very beginning, and he points us to it, continues to point us to it. Have you put your faith in Christ as the Lamb of God, who is the only way to forgiveness of sins, to immersion of the Spirit and eternal life? If not, I pray you repent and believe. For this is the way to true life, restored back to the image of God, reflecting Christ, and declaring with John that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And are you immersed in the Spirit, or maybe are you only just dipping your toe in? See, there's no fence to sit on here. You're either all in or you're not. Are you fully immersed in the Spirit? Are there areas in which you hold so closely onto, thinking it will give you life and contentment, blessing, meaning, perfect purpose, satisfaction, pleasure? See, Jesus is the life, for he is the giver of the Spirit. Descended and remained on him, If you're not feeling that, if you're going through something that may be difficult, if you're really wrestling in that, I urge you to pray. 
Church, I urge you to pray that we would be immersed more fully in God's Spirit, that we would more so glorify Christ with our life as we witness of Him and all that God has done for sinners like us. Are you magnifying Christ in every part of your life? Pray for forgiveness. Go in repentance and pray that you would be filled with the Spirit to do the work that God has set out for you as you rest in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father God, may we just be in awe of you this